Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading from Romans chapter 9, verses 24 to 29. Romans chapter 9, verses 24 to 29. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Hi, good morning. Um, yeah, happy to be sharing God's word one last time with us. Uh, Absolutely no pressure at all. But yeah, let us, uh, let us pray for our time together. Dear Father in heaven, as we come before you in this time of the preaching of your word, Lord, we pray that as we read your, your word, uh, let, us, let us help us understand the truths that are within this text and more importantly, imprint this upon our hearts and let us live in response to your great mercy. In Jesus' most precious name, Amen. So the past few weeks, uh, we have been going through Romans 9 as part of our church's current series uh, in Romans 9-11, to which is Paul's discussion of the issue of the unbelieving Jews. Now in the verses today, uh, verses 24-29, to they really function as a mini-conclusion to what Paul has uh, begun to discuss at the start of this chapter. So, for us to make sense of these verses, we first need to connect the dots of the, uh, I guess, Paul's bigger argument up to this point. So hopefully you can still recall some of what was preached in the last couple of weeks. But anyway, I'm here to give you a quick summary of what Paul has said so far. Okay, verses 1 to 5, uh, Paul is in anguish over the unbelieving Jews because these are the people who have received the word of God, the covenant, the law, etc. Yet many of them have rejected Christ. Now, this is verses 6 to 13, where is where Paul's main argument comes in. Israel's unbelief does not mean that God's word to them has failed. First, because God's people is not a matter of ethnicity, of race, but God's people are chosen by His promise. Now, second, uh, a person's belief is really the result of God's sovereign election. He has mercy on whoever he pleases for his purpose. Now, at verses 14 to 13, last week, Pastor Joe did some heavy lifting, and it's really to deal with all the objections against the idea of election. Now, so we can say that Paul kind of detours uh, in verses 14 to 23 uh, to discuss these matters and to kind of sum it up. Basically, because God is the divine porter, he has the right to do what he desires his choices are ultimately to demonstrate the riches of His glory. So now, how does our verse here, 24 to 29, fit in? We can say that Paul has returned after the little detour in verses 23, 14 to 23 to conclude the main argument of why God's word has not failed. We can say that Paul is really providing evidence of this. First is the fact that Gentiles are also included as God's children. And second, is that a group of Jews will still be saved 
despite their nationwide rebellion against God. So God's word has not failed. Now, I hope this very brief sketch gives us a sense of the overall flow of the text up to this point. So as we continue to examine this text today, uh, to help us along, our sermon outline will be mercy for the undeserved, mercy for the judged, and mercy for his glory. So now, you might be wondering, why so much emphasis on mercy? Mercy, mercy, three times, right? Uh, I think past week, last week, uh, Pastor Joe actually gave us a helpful hint. He said that mercy is a repeated word in Romans 9, and that's really because it's quite a big theme here. So come with me to verses 24. Now it says, Even us whom he has called. Now who is this us that Paul is referring to? Now from the immediate context of this verse, which is verses 23, is this us is referring to the vessels of mercy. These vessels of mercy that God has called, as the rest of verses 24, verse 24 says, includes not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, while the main argument in Romans 9 is that God's word has not failed because he is the one who elects Christians, not only Jews, but also Gentiles, while that's the main argument, I think the text is really here to highlight God's mercy in his sovereign elections. And this is what we see in the rest of the verses from uh, 25 to 29, when Paul uses the Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Isaiah, to show the outflowing of God's mercy to the Gentiles and the remnants of Israel. Now, let us turn to verses 25 to 26. We can say here that Paul is, Paul's use, uh, we will examine Paul's use of Hosea under our first sermon point, mercy for the undeserved. Now first, I wonder here if anybody is very familiar with the context of Hosea. No one, uh? okay, fine. Anyway, so if you are familiar with the context of Hosea, you will know that the book was addressed to Israel, primarily the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the first question might come up, why is this text then used to address Gentiles since they are already addressed to the Israelites? Now second, well, since you already mentioned that uh, you're not very familiar with Hosea, right? Uh, if you look at Hosea, yeah, and you compare with how Paul is using the verses here, you actually see that Paul has taken two separate verses, Hosea 1.10 and 2.23, and combined them. And the wording here is also a little bit different. Now, this does add a layer of complexity to the text, but I don't think the text, this complexity is really intended to kind of muddy the waters. It's, it's really when we piece this whole puzzle together, and we begin to see what Paul is really trying to show us here. Now, to start us, to start things off, let me bring us all up to speed on the book of Hosea. Uh, because of Israel's uh, rebellion and idolatry, God has rejected Israel, and he was going to use the powerful nation of Assyria to judge them and bring them into exile. Now, Hosea pro prophesied that this would happen, and there's nothing that Israel can do to stop this judgment. Yet, there's also hope. Hosea also prophesies that God, God's great mercy will come upon them and once again adopt them to become his sons. Now, to answer why this text includes the Gentiles, 
well, you know, it's primarily addressed to the Israel, to Israel. There are definitely some varying interpretations here, but I think the best, best explanation here is that Hosea's prophecy is actually fulfilled in the New Testament when the Gentiles are included into the body of Christ through Israel. Now, although this prophecy was given to Israel, it was always intended to point forward to something else, to a greater reality where the Jews and the Gentiles are included in the body of Christ. And we see the same emphasis here uh, in Romans, in the previous sermons in Roman, uh, Romans 9, 6 to 8, where we see Paul use Abraham, right, to say that the offspring of Abraham were by promise and not by flesh. So now this tells us simply that God's people were never meant to be an exclusive club where specific people with either special bloodlines or outstanding character or certain status gather. God's people have always been an undeserving group of people that are included by His mercy regardless of time period, regardless of our status, regardless of anything that we can even contribute. Now, this idea is made even more clear uh, when we see how Paul quotes Hosea in the text specifically. Now, as I've mentioned, there are some variations in the text. Paul has combined and modified some of these words. But at first glance, it might kind of seem like Paul is just citing him, Hosea, very loosely. But I think what Paul is trying to do, he's really trying to summarize and amplify the message of Hosea for the purpose of Romans 9. Now, the phrases, those who are not my people and her who was not beloved, now, this is referring to the Israelites in the book of Hosea. So when God, uh, when Israel is referred to as not God's people, it reveals a kind of a, a, a little tragedy here. Uh, maybe not a little big tragedy here. God who had once graciously caught them out of slavery in Egypt to be his people is now rejecting them. And when he rejects them, it means that the Israelites are effectively Gentiles. Now, similarly, the phrase, her who was not beloved, is used to describe Israel. Now, because God was also described to be Israel's metaphorical husband. So, Israel's idolatry is, in effect, adultery against God because they have left him for other false gods. And again, like the Gentiles, they are no longer beloved. Now to suggest that the Israelites are Gentiles would have been a very big blow to the Israelites. They have always seen themselves as maybe a bit special since God called them, right? You know, and they are distinct from Gentiles. All these Gentiles are really just people who worship other gods. But in reality, their behavior is no different than that of a Gentile. They themselves worship the same gods and idols as the Gentiles. If you look in the book of Hosea, they perhaps have let their status as an, an Israelite get to their head, and when in reality, they're no better than an idol-worshipping Gentile. So what Paul is really trying to show the Israelites is that apart from His mercy, God's mercy, the Israelites were always the same as the Gentiles. There's no reason why God's mercy cannot be extended 
to the Gentiles because both of them have always been undeserving of God's grace and mercy. I think this is made even clearer in the next verse, 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, then they will be called sons of the living God. Now, the word, the phrase, the very place, refers to where Israel was exiled to. And this is not so much the geographical location, but it's more of the spiritual state of Israel when they are removed from God's, God's presence and blessings. And this, in this place of spiritual exile, everyone is on the same level. Everyone is undeserving of God's mercy. And it is from there that God is calling to himself a new people, both Jew and Gentile, to become his people, beloved, and they will even be called the sons of the living God. And if you notice the phrase, sons of the living God, is intentionally placed at the end of the quote. And I think it's really to stress this phrase from Romans uh, 8, 14, or Galatians 4, 5 to 7. The idea of the Son of God means that we are co-heirs with Christ. Heirs basically mean that we partake or we share in an inheritance. Uh, and in this case, it means that we share in Christ's inheritance. Now, just think about it. What right do we even have to claim a share in Christ's inheritance? Nothing at all. We are people who naturally rebel. And even in our own hearts, we, we dare challenge God, challenge His mercy, His grace towards us. Even when God is faithful to us, we still betray Him. And I can say this, if you have ever felt the sting of betrayal, just know that our betrayal to God cuts far deeper than we can imagine. Yet, we have received an inheritance that we, have, we should actually have no part in. That's the kind of mercy that God has shown us here. There's also a significance to the word used uh, in Hosea. The word was used, that was used was said, but Paul uses the word call. Now, according to commentators, the word call in this context um, is what we call in theology the effectual call, which basically is an effective and a very sure call, as opposed to an, an invitation you know, that you, you can reject. This means that those that God has called never saw the need for themselves to be called to begin with. They never saw the need for them to be God's beloved. They never saw the need for them to be God's people. Or they never even valued the kind of glorious inheritance that we're going to receive because of Christ. This inheritance means nothing to these people. Yet, God calls us against our own foolish wills for, the, for a benefit that we cannot even begin to grasp. 
think even now as Christians, we often behave like the Israelites in Hosea. We receive grace, yet our lives remain worldly. We chase after the idols of this world. We value the things of this world far more than the precious salvation and the inheritance that comes with it. And our apathy to the gospel in our lives, ironically, it works as a witness against us, showing how undeserved we are to even receive God's mercy. And to pair this with the fact that we can always return to Christ, despite our constant failures, I think it really hammers home this reality. I think, simply put, the more we, as vessels of mercy, understand and digest how thoroughly undeserving we are, the greater God's mercy will begin to appear to us. Now, moving on to verses 27 to 29, I think there's a little interesting detail here in verse 27. Uh, this quote comes actually from Isaiah 10, 22-23. This verse actually shares a very similar wording to Hosea 1.10. Uh, I'm not going to cite it here, but it so happens to coincide with verse 20, 26. So it's almost as if you know, Paul is trying to do uh, a clever segue or kind of a transition from verse 26 to 27. But I think what Paul is actually trying to do is also to provide contrast in verses 25 to 26, God's mercy is shown in his gracious calling of the undeserved. And in verse 27 to 29, God's mercy is shown against the backdrop of his terrifying judgment. Hence our second sermon point, mercy for the judged. Now, while we thankfully, thankfully, uh, while Paul's use of Hosea is a little bit more complex, his use of Isaiah here is a lot more straightforward. Uh, other than some minor changes, the text you can say is pretty much the same uh, in, in its meaning and maybe some deviation in wording. So a quick context for the verses in Isaiah that Paul is quoting. Now this time around, focusing on Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel instead. Now Israel has broken God's covenant and has fallen into a nationwide apostasy. Uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that they will be judged and be taken into exile. However, we see in these verses that God's mercy still comes upon them, and even a remnant of them will be saved despite their nationwide apostasy. Now, in verses 27 to 28, uh, I, I think it's pretty straightforward what Paul is highlighting here. God is just and he will judge Israel's rebellion properly and promptly. On one hand, because their numbers are like the sand of the sea. So the remnants, the remnant, a smaller group of them, they are safe, shows the nature of God's judgment, right? They, they used to be so big, but now only a small group is being saved. On the other hand, he also shows God's mercy for Israel when they were supposed to be wiped out to begin with. And this is what we see in verse 29. 
when uh, Paul quotes Isaiah 1 9, and we also see Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're familiar with them in the Old Testament, basically what happened to them was that they were fully wiped out because of God's judgment on them. And I think this use of Sodom and Gomorrah is really to bring out the full weight of God's judgment that was supposed to come upon Israel to begin with. And when you, when you put this against, uh, against God's, Israel's supposed total annihilation, God's preservation of the remnant of Israel really shows how great God's mercy is for these remnants, these vessels of mercy. Now, of course, returning to the bigger argument, now, it's true the mercy that God has shown in the remnants that, you know, it proves that God's word has not failed because the Israelites did not uh, did receive the promise through the patriarchs and because of that, you know, at least a remnant of them are safe, proving that indeed not all who descend, descended from Israel belong to Israel. But you might be wondering, how does this concern me? This, this is primarily about Israel, right? What's it got to do with us? Maybe verses 25 to 26, there's a bit of an application. They're Gentiles, right? So, so yeah, we're Gentiles, so there's a connection there. But what about verse 29, 27 to 29? I think for one, the nature of God's mercy and judgment applies to us in the very same way. The weight of God's judgment of Israel that we see in these verses are what we are supposed to experience. Ephesians 2-3 says, we are by nature children of wrath. Our fate was always meant to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I know a common question will always be, uh, are we trying to overdo this you know, by emphasizing God's wrath and judgment, all this fire and brimstone? Is it a bit much for the church? I think on one hand, it's entirely possible to condemn someone using God's wrath and never actually confront yourself with that reality. It's easy to condemn others, but to condemn yourself, it's a different thing. And I believe if you really come face to face with the full force of God's wrath, we'll be on our knees, trembling, and on the other hand, I don't think we even want to downplay God's wrath even for one second. Why? Because God's judgment and mercy goes hand in hand. They both stand in a sharp contrast to one another. And that's the point of Romans 9, 23 to 20, 22 to 23, that Joe preached to us last week. These vessels of wrath helps us make sense of the vessels of mercy. And this is why we also see in places like Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature children of wrath and is followed up by it, verses 4, but God being rich in mercy. Right? Wrath, judgment is always there with grace and mercy. And I think it's even possible to say that without judgment, one can't possibly make sense of mercy. 
Because why does one even need mercy when there's no wrath? And if this wrath is so small, then that mercy is nothing much. It's something we can do, right? And this is why we don't downplay God's wrath, nor do we proclaim God's wrath without showing His mercy. And let me summarize this. The more we understand the weight of God's judgment that was supposed to befall us, the more we can see the amazing mercy of God to spare us of what we actually deserve. Now, maybe just to go back into the text and last week, returning to Romans 9, 22 to 23, uh, there's also something to this comparison between the vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Besides, you know, them being hand in hand, it's also to do something else. As the Bible scholar G.K. Bill summarizes for us, the riches of God's glory are found in the mercy that He in freedom bestows on His people. At the end of the day, God's mercy is to display His glory. And this is the last point of our sermon. God's glory is shown through His vessels of mercy, us, especially when we reflect the merciful salvation that he has accomplished in us. So it's not much of a stretch to say that when we glorify God, we, we glorify God when our lives reflect God's mercy. But what does it mean for our lives to reflect mercy? For this, I'll just share two points. First, I think God's mercy transforms forgiveness. Uh, in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 23 to 35, we see a, ma- a servant. And this servant, uh, he actually owed his master a big debt of 10,000 talents. So one talent is about 20 years of wages for a laborer. So that's about 200,000 years of work. So over 1,000 lifetimes of debt. Uh, the point here is that it's an impossible debt. It's impossible to repay this debt, just like our debt of sin. Yet this servant, he actually received great mercy when his master just decided to cancel his debt. However, this servant, when he saw another servant who owed him a measly sum of 100 denarii, uh, which is again, is about a 10, uh, 100 days of work, which... But when, when he saw this servant, he actually did not forgive him, even though he himself had been forgiven. And he, he even went so far to put that servant into prison, the other servant into prison. So when his master found out that he has done this, the master said this, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And I think the parable is pretty clear here. Once you understand the full weight of mercy that you have received, you will have mercy on others. But again, uh, I don't need to tell you how difficult it is to forgive others in today's age of cynicism. Uh, it, it feels like 
forgiveness is just very empty in, in today's age. And, and I think um, Tim Keller's book, Forgiveness, uh, yeah, Pastor Z has recommended this to us a lot of times, right? So yeah, forget to read it. But anyway, the point here is that in his book, he actually gives a very uh, good description of forgiveness that really helps us. He suggests that today's forgiveness is done in a therapeutic way, uh, in a sense that it's really for self-interest, self-actualization. Uh, you don't actually do it because you forgive the person. You forgive it. You forgive the person to give yourself closure. You forgive maybe to get a grip on your own state of mind or you know, to have freedom from this burden you know, or peace of mind, that kind of thing. But true forgiveness comes from an, an understanding of the kind of mercy that we received from the cross. It comes from understanding how undeserving we are to receive God's mercy and the kind of punishment that Christ has actually took on our behalf. And I'll be very honest here. I am far from a gospel-motivated forgiver. Uh, if you were to look inside my brain, I think it's actually wired to remember grudges for a lifetime. Okay, not to scare anybody here, but that's the reality, right? Um, looking back, I, I can't help but ponder how, how would all the relationships, relationships that I had in the past that have soured been like if I was somebody who knew how to forgive, what would my life have looked like? And imagine if a church is, is a place where everyone is marked by genuine forgiveness. What kind of place would it be? Right? I know it sounds impossible, but I think this is what scripture actually calls us to. I don't think we can do this by our own means. There are no ways we can try to manufacture forgiveness. Perhaps the only way for us is to humbly pray for God, God to help us understand the full weight of His mercy that sits on us, that even allows us to be here, present in this very moment. That's our first point. And our final point um, on what it means for our lives to reflect mercy. Now, this is something that can be found in Romans 9. Uh, it's not in the same direct sense of reflecting mercy as in forgiveness, but it's really about reflecting the humility that comes with a recognition that we have all received undeserved mercy. Now, what, what am I referring to in the text? I'm referring to the Jews not being able to accept the idea that Jews and Gentiles are actually both partaking in God's mercy. And earlier in Romans 2, God, uh, Paul has already addressed the issue of circumcision you know, because certain Jews felt that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised for them to be more Christian, right? more proper. Right? So I was just thinking about this and I realized that this persists even in today. I mean, I mean, we obviously don't force people to be circumcised, but I think... To some degree, all of us 
we desire for our fellow Christians to be a certain to be in a certain way, a certain manner, a certain way of thinking, maybe even dressing or something that fits our liking. And in some cases, we even dare say that this opinion or preference that we have is more Christian. And I think sometimes it, can, it could come from different backgrounds and upbringings, and it goes, can even come from um, a place of different convictions. I'm just going to share my own example. I, I, I grew up in uh, quote unquote traditional church background. There are certain things that you grew up with, uh, that I grew up with, that I've always, has always been my entire outlook on Christianity, right? So that's how I thought church should be. Uh, and you know, how Christians should behave and things like that. So for instance, traditional hymns, the use of voices, or like a certain, certain behavior, a certain austerity when it comes to church and things like that. And to be clear, I think some of these things are good. Uh, I did not just follow them blindly, just to clarify. I've actually come to embrace and appreciate some of these things in, in the past. So the point is when I actually ventured into other churches, and I saw different people, different practices, uh, I had a lot to comment. A lot of pinpoint. Oh, this person's not doing this. This person is, you know, you know his behavior is kind of weird. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. And you know, you know what's the worst part? When I couldn't get over some of these differences, I, I would actually, in my mind, in my mind, I would cite Romans 14. Uh, basically, if you know Romans 14, it is saying that if you see another brother that is doing something that you think is not so right, that person is the weaker brother. But thinking back, ironically, I was the weaker brother. I was on passing judgment, right? So Romans 14 was really talking about me. Romans 14, 10 says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Yes, we are the God truth, and it's really important. But more often than not, I think we tend to pass judgment more arbitrarily. We use our own standards, preferences, comforts, things like that. And it really shows that sometimes we can't even deal with our own biases. And I think this is particularly important for any church to grapple with. And as a church grows, changes, the diversity of people change. The makeup of the people change. The dynamics of the entire church change. It might not be the same after Marino 1, maybe, hopefully. Um, but we're not marked by our particular preference or type of people. Or a particular church culture, or use the Gen Z term, church vibe. We're not marked by these things. We are marked by Christ. And when we humbly recognize that we are all vessels of mercy, we do not label others. Or do we make a distinction between us and them? There's really nothing that we can bring to the table. We we can't boast or make claim over our superiority to another Christian. When we... All we can actually ever boast of 
in Galatians 6, 14, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I dare say that God's, God is most glorified when His mercy is reflected more clearly in the lives of His vessels of mercy. And when we begin to grapple with the fact that we are thoroughly undeserving people, yet we have received an undeserved heavenly inheritance that we didn't even care about, and we are all actually by nature children of wrath, yet we received undeserved mercy from our total annihilation. So let us all grapple and pray for God to once again rekindle our affections towards the gospel, transform us with the knowledge of His great mercy. And the real purpose of all of this is so that His glory may be made known to the world. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, as we come before you, we know that we are just thoroughly undeserving of even being here in this moment to gather and worship you. Whatever that has happened, how, how we've been come here is really a product, a product of your great mercy towards us. Lord, we know that deep down in our hearts, perhaps there's still a certain part of us that still struggles with understanding what your mercy is, how undeserving we are, how great your judgment was to us initially. Help us, Lord. Help us grapple with this reality. Let us do that as a church. Pray that we all be We'll be a church that's marked by your mercy. Help us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.